Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Nudge. Today we're not chatting about uh, a, a latest marketing book or a company's innovative marketing strategy. No, today we're testing out an idea. In the second episode with Rory Sutherland, we talk through an idea that Rory would love to implement. Now, he spends most of his week helping some of the world's largest businesses with massive budgets to convince customers to do things. This, undeniably, is enjoyable work. Seeing thousands, if not millions of people take action due to your work is fulfilling, to say the least. But... Rory's been doing this for the last 20 years, and big businesses with big budgets are great, but they're not for everyone. Here's Rory's dream. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. What I love about nudge stuff, okay, is it's scalable. You can practice it as a government or a large multinational. You can practice it in day-to-day affairs. I, I want to actually scale down the Ogilvy behavioral science practice so that unlike an ad agency, we don't just work with large organizations who have an ad budget. I want to work with the Thames Valley Police, which we do actually. And I want, you know, I want to work with cafes. I want to be able to have a team which can go into a cafe, a single owner run cafe and add value to their business. John Maynard Keynes said he wanted economists to become a bit like dentists. Okay. Where, you know, not not people just operating at this huge kind of macro level, but people who can give you a handy tip and a bit of helpful advice. I'd like behavioral scientists to become like dentists. (laughs) That's my retirement plan is to open up a little surgery somewhere in Thanet, you know, where people can come in and pop in for half an hour and ask for a bit of behavioral science advice. So in today's show, we are going to create the Sutherland Nudge Clinic. It'll be just like a normal clinic, except instead of plastic chairs and a fluorescent white waiting room, there'll be soft jazz and sofas. Rather than seeing a doctor with a white lab coat, you'll be greeted casually by um, a professional dressed in a tweed jacket. And of course, instead of showing your physical aches and pains, 
You'll bring cognitive problems. You'll ask the doctor how to get people to believe you, how to sound more convincing, and how to get more people to buy your product. That's today's show. I'll share some patient case studies with Rory, and he'll do his best to prescribe some treatment. Now, patient number one, first through the door, comes with a fairly simple problem. She needs to convince her parents to change their habits. They're getting old, and they're stuck in their ways, refusing to keep up to speed with the latest tech. Here's Rory's prescription. Uh, the example I always give about this is with my dad, okay? My dad w wouldn't get Sky. Now, he lives in the Y Valley, where at the time you couldn't even get Freeview. So he had three bloody channels, and Channel 4 was in Welsh, I think. Right? Okay? And I said to him, no, no, you really ought to get Sky. It, it, it's great, because he's not interested in sport or movies, but he loves documentaries. And the Sky kind of factual pack with news and documentaries is about 17 quid a month. He wouldn't get it. So I offered to pay for him. I said, oh, don't worry, I'll pay for it for you. No, no, he's still too expensive. And so I did a little um, Don Draper re-anchoring, reframing mind trick. And I said, it's not £17 a month, Dad. It's 60p a day. And he said, well, that's exactly the same. In fact, 60p a day is slightly more expensive. I said, yeah, but you spend £2 a day on newspapers. And I said, if you spend £2 a day on newspapers, it's not that crazy spending another 37% on 200 channels of news and documentary footage, is it? Oh, I see what you mean. He went and paid for it himself. He's now the biggest Sky advocate going. He's, you know, among the nonogenarians of the Y Valley. He's known for his tendency to say, I can't believe you haven't got Sky Plus, right? Now, that's an absolute example of the fact that there's a difference between a fact and a message, right? How you portray a fact determines how people respond. Anchoring, a smart cure to help highlight the benefits of a new offering. Perfect for parents stuck in their ways, but also for potential customers who aren't willing to switch. Now, patient number two comes in with a rather different problem. They run a cafe in a city centre. The rent is high, the location is great, but they just can't seem to get people in the door. The owner has tried changing the menu, hiring more staff, even a little bit of advertising, but nothing has worked. So he's heading to the Nudge Clinic to see what Rory can suggest. I would give you probably, for any cafe, uh, leave tables outside on the pavement if you're allowed to do so, even when it's cold or raining, because it's a signal not only that you exist, but that you're open, because it's a costly signal. If I were closed, I wouldn't have put the tables out because people would nick them. OK, uh, next thing would be um, I'd... Um, uh, I'd, I'd look at offering table service, which cafes just don't do. So pubs don't do this. Go around the tables and say, anybody wants some more, drink, more drinks? Because a lot of the reason I don't buy a second coffee is because I don't want to lose the table, right? I don't want to lose my seat or I can't leave my laptop. So when things are quiet, go and upsell people a bit, right? Third thing... Um, never, ever, and this is an advice to a shop as well, if you want to create a customer for life, right, do this. Close the door at four. Lock it, okay? Don't have a sign that says open or close. Just lock the door. If anybody comes and tries the door, make a big show of unlocking the door and say, I was closing, but come in. Would you like anything to drink or anything to eat, right? They interpret that emotionally as, gosh, this person really values and respects me. He loves me, therefore I love him, right? There's a dry cleaner in Seven Oaks, which I won't name because that would be a bit malicious, okay? But there's a dry cleaner in Seven Oaks. 
um, where I turned up at one minute past five and the guy wouldn't let me in because he said he was closed. I was collecting, not dropping something off, right? I've never been, I've never used that dry cleaner other than collecting the item I deposited. I've never used that dry cleaner for the next three years. So there are certain behaviors where you're, you just go, well, I close at four, I close at five. Those are the rules, so you can't come in. The way the consumer interprets that is as a measured personal insult. Okay, it's you don't want people like me in your store, right? You know, I mean, you know, imagine how you'd react to that if you were, you know, from a minority group, perhaps you it would be even worse, right? Because regardless of the actual facts, your interpretation is going to be context mediated. Okay, and I'd also have a load of tips. What else would I do? Men menu design being really critical. Um, I'd also ask the um, the very interesting question, which is, if you look at Starbucks, it seems to indicate that we will pay more for coffee from a place that only sells coffee. That's the jack-of-all-trades heuristic, right? I think there is enormous scope to open niche cafes. So my retirement plan is to open a place called Bacon Bap, right? And all it sells, but I'm going to charge, like five guys, I'm going to charge like six quid for a Bacon Bap but it's going to be like a bacon get back made by God. And I'll sell coffee and, you know, a few other things. Maybe you can have an egg on the back. Okay. But look for inspiration from the counterintuitive things like five guys, which is a really interesting business because two things, the signature milkshake and the burger itself are really expensive. Everything else is really cheap. The toppings are free, right? Um, the peanuts are free. The refills are free. Um, and um, you hardly pay anything for fries because they give you a huge scoop of extra fries. So you'll never go hungry. And yet, in a kind of McDonald's environment, you're paying £8.90 for a burger. Now, everybody would have said that was impossible. And everybody who did premium burgers like GBK and so forth did the whole table service and napkins shit, you know, which is costly. But Five Guys has managed to charge nine quid for a burger in a, in a, in a McDonald's environment. Now, admittedly, OK, it's not going to scale to the same extent McDonald's does. You know, it's probably got a big tourist appeal. It's less frequent in people's use. Nonetheless, they managed to do it without scandalizing the populace. That's interesting. So go and nick up. You go and look for I'd have ideas about queuing. Um, you know, I'd have loads of ideas. If there's a queue, what can we do? You know, you know, is there a better way? One thing I noticed about Starbucks, which is a mistake, is they should let me order my coffee while I'm in the queue because time waiting for your food or drink to be prepared is less painful than time spent waiting to tell someone what you want. Because although in durational terms they're identical, and an ordinary measurement wouldn't be able to distinguish psychologically waiting for mcdonald's to make my burger is actually added value time whereas waiting to tell mcdonald's what burger i want is actually wasting my time i don't know if rory will charge for entrance to the nudge clinic but patient number two has got pretty good value for money there Table service can help increase sales by anchoring and prompting. Taking someone's order as they enter will reduce stress. This is essentially the, the sort of Uber effect. We don't mind waiting 15 minutes for an Uber as we know it's on its way. That's a very different feeling for waiting 15 minutes on the side of a busy London street trying to hail down a taxi. But the tables and chairs left outside the cafe is probably my favourite example here. It's an example of costly signalling. 
Now, costly signaling shows that the meaning we attach to something is felt in direct proportion to the expense in which it's communicated. So essentially, the costliness carries meaning. So making the effort to put tables and chairs outside shows that your cafe has hard-working staff. It suggests that the cafe regularly gets business and that the cafe is potentially so popular that visitors occasionally have to sit outside. That's the power of costly signalling. And as Rory Sutherland explained in his book, it's why a handwritten thank you card carries more meaning than a text, why a university degree carries more meaning than a Udemy course, and why asking someone out face-to-face carries more meaning than on Tinder. Anyway, back to the nudge clinic we head, where patient number three has come in with a fairly interesting problem. This patient works in the government and is tasked with reducing the number of repeat drink drivers. Their team has tried increasing fines, creating TV ads, but so far nothing has worked. So here's Rory with a very interesting counterintuitive solution. What do we do with people when, they, when they're found driving above the alcohol limit? We ban them from driving. What happens when you're banned from driving for a year? You become an alcoholic, okay? Because everybody else is driving you around. You've got to take a taxi. So you end up getting pissed every single night. No one seems to have spotted that fairly obvious problem, right? Okay? So sending people to AA might be a better approach um, than banning them from driving. But anyway, um, I, you know, I, I don't think loss aversion is irrational, by the way. Economists do. But ergodicity economics, as perhaps... Uh, you must get Ole Peters on your show. Ergodicity economics shows that under multiplicative dynamics, it makes sense to minimise variance and minimise downside risk disproportionately more than it makes sense to optimise the expected outcome in a single shot game. Because under multiplicative dynamics, there's interdependency between the different decisions you make, which is true of real life, by the way, right? You know, three bad events hitting in close succession is worse for you than three bad events. You know, um, you know, uh, you, you know generally, if you get divorced, try not to lose your license, right? Because if you lose your license and you become divorced in the same month, uh, you'll probably become an alcoholic. These counterintuitive ideas help in all sorts of different contexts. But Rory makes the point that ideas like this aren't actually as rare as many of us think. He states that some of the world's most successful companies are built on ideas that at first glance seem crazy. Take Wikipedia. Who would have thought that thousands of individuals would spend millions of hours documenting and collecting the world's information for free? Look at McDonald's. No one in a focus group would say that they essentially want to be forced to choose between three or four items at a restaurant, and yet we'll do. And even Starbucks is a counterintuitive idea. I highly doubt that you would have found an American 20 years ago who would have said they would have paid $5 for something they can make at home for just a few cents. And yet today, 37 million Americans visit Starbucks each month. Here's Rory summarising this point. I think what you need to know is you need to acknowledge that people don't necessarily know what they want, uh, that economists certainly don't know what's good for people, and that market research is an unreliable um, way to discover unmet or untapped needs because the unmet needs are often unthought and therefore unspoken. And looking at people's past behavior is naturally constraining um, because uh, it only shows what people do under situation and choice frame x not what they might do under choice architecture y 
So all three of the means we use to predict the future in terms of human behavior are deeply in, uh, incomplete. And therefore, what we need to do is hypothesize more and experiment more. Perfectly good science, by the way. You know, that's science. If you see Richard Feynman on how you do science, and it's easy, he basically says, you start by doing science and what you do first is you need to have a hypothesis. How do you come up with a hypothesis? And Feynman, in front of a whole audience, says, you guess. right? And everybody bursts out laughing. And he says, don't laugh. That's how it works. You guess. And then if your guess conflicts with experiment, you're wrong. That's it. Right? Okay. That's science. Okay? And... Um, uh, I'm not looking for the Newton of behavioral science. I think you, you'll never have a Newton of behavioral science. What you'll have is a Darwin, you know. And Darwin is interesting because biology is a science of exceptions. It's not a science of generalizable laws. And biology proceeds by going, that's fucking funny. Why the hell's a ladybird red, right? That, that's how you do it, okay? And I, I, I try and cultivate Robert H. Frank, who wrote The Economic Naturalist, is one of my huge influences here. And I try and I'm born in Lundbaddock, okay, tiny Welsh village, which was the birthplace of Alfred Russell Wallace, okay, who probably deserves half the credit for evolutionary theory. Um, but um, I try and cultivate as far as I can the mind of a kind of naturalist or a biologist or an environmentalist, actually, and perfectly you know, an ecologist, because that automatically includes systems thinking and it's a science of exceptions. And my, my proudest achievement this year is really bizarre. And I thought he might be actually angry, but he was actually delighted. So I was very interested in Nassim Taleb's idea, which originally comes from a French physicist of minority rule, which is that um, because of um, ease of uniformity and uh, what you might call ease of consensus, if you have seven kids in a school who are Muslim, the whole kitchen goes halal, right? Because there's an asymmetry, because... Christians are happy eating halal meat, but Muslims aren't happy eating non-halal meat. So the easiest thing to do, even though it doesn't represent majority opinion, is to respect the intransigent minority. Okay. And I was interested in that, how that applied to food, which I said that one of the reasons pizza is very popular isn't because everybody loves it in aggregate, but nobody hates it, you know, except my dad. He's the only person I know who thinks it's disgusting. But apart from my dad, nobody hates pizza. So it's a kind of, it's like type a, 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 B blood. You know, you can give it to everybody. It was that type O. I can never remember. I can never remember which way around it is. Okay. And I chatted to Dane Smith, who's a fantastic guy at Ogilvy in Sydney, about this minority rule thing. And he passed it on to KFC in Australia, which caused KFC in Australia to launch the Build Your Own Bucket, okay, which is a bucket you can build, which is not so much designed to achieving an optimal KFC bucket, but a bucket which doesn't contain anything which one or two of your family hate, you know, like the hull or the wings or whatever, I, you know, you know, you know the stuff, right? And that's that, you know, and, and now what they'll do is they'll see how well the build your own bucket works. And that's how it should work. Right. And I thought it was really fantastic, which is you have, you know, eventually a French intellectual inspiring a KFC bucket design on the other side of the world. And I, 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 it's infantile, I know, but that's the kind of thing that delights me. You know, I am faintly childish and I try and maintain a kind of infantilism as far as I can, because one of the great, th the bad things that comes with adulthood is a sense of proportion and a sense of proportions. OK, if you're dealing with physics, right, it's bad in psychology 
because what we actually care about is often surprisingly trivial and it's undignified as an adult to talk about trivial things because we're supposed to be talking about like budget planning for Q3, right? We're not supposed to be talking about why don't we make it green, okay, <laughs> right? And yet in the success of a business, making it green can be more important than talking about if I can capacity planning bollocks and what's happened in business because of this idea about what's serious we've allowed the administrative cast to take over the whole of business is run for the convenience of its administrators now shocking making it green can often be more important I can't think of a better line to finish this episode. Anyway, that is all we have time for today. I do hope you've enjoyed this visit to the Nudge Clinic with the brilliant Rory Sutherland. I'm sure I don't have to promote it anymore, but if you haven't checked out Rory's book, Alchemy, then do go and check that out. There's a link to it in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed today's show, get in touch with me and let me know what you think. Rory is is really open to doing another show like this sometime in the future. So if you've enjoyed it, let me know and we'll try and organize something soon. Also, make sure you signed up to the emailing list, um, which the link to which is in the show notes. And if you do so, you'll get an email every time a new episode goes live and an email with a nudge tip every other week. Now, my nudge tips are nudges that I see in the world that I think are particularly interesting. So do sign up there if you want to get a bit more inspiration every other week. Cheers again, and thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge.